Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Before I introduce our speaker, I would like to uh, address some preliminary preliminary, uh, matters. Today's event is part of our series, Free Markets, the Ethical Economic Choice. If you would like to watch our previous events, you can do so. Some of them are quite good. Uh, All of them are good. Some of them are quite good. Um, And that you can get that at heritage.org forward slash free dash markets or go to the Heritage Foundation YouTube channel, and all of our events are available there. Our next event will feature James Otteson, who's a professor at Wake Forest University. He's also the executive director of the Unimodia Institute and author of The End of Socialism. That event will be May 9th. Uh, Following our speaker's presentation today, we will have time for some audience questions. Our speaker today is Jason Brennan. His topic is fake socialism versus real capitalism. Dr. Brennan is professor of strategy, economics, ethics, and public policy at the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University. He's been at Georgetown since 2011. He previously taught at Brown University. He's a prolific author. Um, He's written countless uh, journal articles, op-ed articles, and Uh, blogs and so on, but he's also the author or co-author of nine books, and they are In Defense of Openness, Why Global Freedom is the Humane Solution to Global Poverty, Against Democracy, Political Philosophy and Introduction, Markets Without Limits, Why Not Capitalism, Compulsory Voting, For and Against, Libertarianism, What Everyone Needs to Know, The Ethics of Voting, and a brief history of liberty. A tenth book, Cracks in the Ivory Tower, The Moral Mess of Higher Education, will be published next month. He has also edited the Rutledge Handbook of Libertarianism. He has six additional books coming out soon or under contract. uh, I've read four of Dr. Brennan's books. He writes with clarity and erudition, and he's interdisciplinary in his approach. He has a PhD and an MA in philosophy from the University of Arizona, a BA in philosophy from the University of New Hampshire, and a BA in economics from Case Western University. Please join me in welcoming Jason Brennan. Uh, Thanks very much for having me here today and for taking your time on a Thursday morning to hang out with me. Um, what I want to do today is something unusual, and that's I'm going to try to convince you that you're all deep down really socialist with a, what seems to be like a good argument, but then I'm going to show you why that argument is wrong. And it's going to tell us something about the nature of capitalism and socialism and the debate that people have about that. 
So let's start by talking about the movie Capitalism, a Love Story. I assume everyone here has watched that probably recently. You might watch that a couple times a week, given that you're here in this audience. Michael Moore spends 127 minutes complaining about the evils of capitalism and how it just ruins everything. And at the end, he says, you know, you can't reform evil. You can't regulate evil. You have to eliminate evil and replace it with something good. And that good thing is economic democracy. So even Michael Moore, after 127 minutes with maybe a little bit of hyperbole here and there, complaining about the evils of capitalism, doesn't just come out and say, I want socialism. He uses the word economic democracy. Why not? Why was socialism kind of a bad word? And when I wrote this book, it was sort of a bad word, though in recent years it's become kind of a nicer word. People are more into it. I think what's going on here, though, is that for many older people, if maybe not college students who don't remember this stuff or weren't around for it, for many older people, socialism has become a bad word because of what happened in the 20th century. There's a narrative that goes like this. In the 20th century, the world experimented with two very different forms of economic organization. Some countries tried socialism. Those countries, Cuba, North Korea, uh, Cambodia, uh, what else, um, you know, USSR and so on, China, they were hellholes. They were desperately poor. They engaged in massive amounts of murder of the innocent, and especially of the very poor workers that they were supposed to liberate, they mistreated them on a mass scale. In contrast, the countries that tried capitalism of some form or other, Canada, Switzerland, the USSR, South Korea, Denmark, and so on, became rich, and their citizens are doing quite well, and even the poor there do well compared to everybody else. So it seems like we had this debate. We had a natural experiment of trying this with a bunch of different countries. Capitalism won by a landslide, even by Marxist standards. Capitalism won by a landslide. So why would we even have this debate anymore? You know, and when you look at the data, it looks pretty good. When you think, here's a map from the Heritage Foundation about which countries are the most capitalist and which are the most non-capitalist. The green ones are the very capitalist ones, and the not green ones are not very capitalist. And when you look around, you think, where are countries where the average person is living a good lifestyle, where even the poor are doing quite well? They're generally the green countries on the map, and the countries that are red are not doing so well. These are not countries where, if you have left-wing politics, you'd think that they're a big success story. Um, here's another map, rival index of economic freedom by the Fraser Institute. Um, and again, the blue countries on the map are the most capitalist, and these are the countries where people flourish the most, and they're the happiest and healthiest, and the poor in particular have the best lifestyles. Capitalism has been a tremendous achievement over the past century. Uh, when you look at what's happened to, say, the world poverty, it's down now under 10%. So you're almost out all of human history. As Deirdre McCloskey says, you know, once upon a time, everyone everywhere was poor, and then capitalism happened, and now we're rich. You know, it's now the point where, in the beginning of the 19, uh, 20th century, 95% of people lived in extreme poverty, and now it's down to about 10%. And though we've had a massive explosion in the number of people alive, nevertheless, most people are living better than they have throughout all of human history. Uh, and it turns out that if you look at things like GDP per capita, the amount of wealth per person in a particular country, it's strongly correlated with how capitalist that country is. And in fact, the more capitalist countries go significantly above the trend line. But maybe if you're kind of a Rawlsian or leftist person, you say reasonably, well, I don't care about how well the average person is doing. I want to know about the poor. How well do the poor do? But if you take something like the Fraser Index of Economic Freedom or the Heritage Index, and you look at 
the income of the people, the bottom 10th percentile of income in those countries, before they receive any welfare payments, before they receive any government transfers, you find that they're making around you know, 10,500 a year, 11,500 a year, which isn't a lot, but even adjusting for like the cost of living and purchasing price parity puts them in the top 15% of income earners in the world. In contrast, in places that are less capitalist, the poor do much, much worse. So it seemed like if you have left-wing values and you're like, I'm concerned about making sure that the worst off do as well as possible, then you should be just loving capitalism because it delivers the goods more than any other system that we have. Beyond that, not only is it delivering money and filthy lucre, but it's delivering life. When we look at the life expectancy of people in different countries, you find that it's strongly correlated with the income of that country. The richer countries have people that live longer, and the richer countries are the more capitalist countries. Other work has found that the richer countries are the happier countries. So the more money people have, the happier they tend to be. The most capitalist countries tend to have the happiest people. So it's done. No debate, right? It's all over. We won. Capitalism won. Socialism lost. There's no further debate to be had. The funny thing that's happened, though, um, and continues to happen, is that despite this experiment of the 20th century, socialists still hang on to socialism. And their way of hanging on to it is to retreat to the moral high ground. They make an argument that goes like this. It's an argument that you may have heard before from others. You yourself might even accept this argument. Sometimes many people who are classically liberal or libertarian oriented make the very same argument. They say something like this. Socialism doesn't work because people aren't very nice. When you institute a socialist system, you ask people to be sort of impartial, benevolent dictators of the uh, economic production to try to promote the common good of all, but we don't get that. What we get instead is a Stalin or a Pol Pot. When you ask people to kind of work together for the common good, they're not willing to do it, and they shirk on their responsibilities, they engage in, tra like, create a tragic commons, they free ride upon public goods, and it ends up being a disaster. People just aren't very nice, and that's the reason why socialism doesn't work. It's not that the system is bad. It's that people are flawed, right? You give them power and say, do good things with this power, and they go, no, I'm going to just kill all the people I don't like. That's, that's bad behavior. People are morally flawed, and that's the reason socialism fails. Capitalism, on the other hand, you know, it works with our natural tendencies to be selfish and evil and kind of mean and not care about one another. So selfish, so what capitalism does is makes a deal with you. You care mostly about you, I care mostly about me, but um, we'll have this economic system where it turns out the best way I can serve my self-interest is by promoting some of your interests and vice versa. And so even though we're both selfish jerks, we end up working towards the public benefit. And you see that even great classical liberal thinkers like Adam Smith and David Hume make arguments like that. David Hume says, if I could but wave a magic wand and turn everyone into a perfect altruistic angel, there'd be no need for private property, no need for the rules of justice, no need for the rules of capitalism. They're a useful tool to deal with the problem of limited human generosity and limited human kindness. Adam Smith says something very similar. It's not from the benevolence of the butcher or the baker or the tailor that I expect to get my meals or my clothing. It's with regard to their own self-interest. I have to appeal to their self-interest, and they appeal to mine. So because of this, a very common story is capitalism is a good functional system for bad people like you. Socialism is a bad system for bad people like you. But if people were good, it would work. Now, if that's the case, then socialism still kind of commands the moral high ground. It still sort of sounds better than capitalism. Sure, we shouldn't try it, but it's, you know, it's like 
It's what we should do if only we were good. It's kind of the same argument people make when they say, if only human beings were angel, we wouldn't, angels, we wouldn't need government, right? So if we were angels, we'd be anarchists, but because we're jerks, we have government. It's still kind of like anarchism contains the moral high ground. Now, I think the best exponent of this book view is the Marxist philosopher Jerry Cohen, who uh, recently passed away. He worked at All Souls College at um, the University of Oxford. You might notice that's the cover of his book, and when I wrote my book responding to it, Healthier flowers and more. At one point, we experimented with making the flowers uh, gold, so be gold and black, you know, anarcho-capitalist colors, but didn't look very good, so we kept with the red and black, even though those are Marxist colors. Right. So you might not have heard of Jerry Cohen. Perhaps you have heard of him, but he's perhaps the best exponent of the view that I've just pushed. The view that if only we were good, we would be socialist. Socialism commands the moral high ground over capitalism, even though capitalism works. So what I want to do is walk you through his argument, because he thinks deep down you're all really committed to the view that socialism is better. And what I want to do is explain why his argument goes wrong and then respond to him and make the following argument. Even if human beings were angels, we would still be capitalist. If I'm right about that, what that means is if we were angels, we'd be capitalist. Capitalism is better as an ideal. And also in the real world with bad people like you and me, capitalism is also still better, which means capitalism will beat socialism on every level. So, what do we mean by these terms? People throw around the words in all sorts of ways. I'm going to use the words roughly as follows. This is sort of the institutional definition of capitalism and socialism. To be a socialist society means that you forbid private ownership of the means of production. Most socialists like Jerry Cohen say, it's fine for you to own a suit. It's fine for you to own a computer. It's fine for you to own like a car, as long as you don't drive it Uber style and make money off of it. You know. I can have a guitar, but if I charge money to make people listen, then I can't own that. I can't use it like that. Productive property has to be collectively owned by all the people all at once or through the representative of the state. And there's going to be a smaller sphere of economic liberty, as libertarians understand it, or as like heritage would understand it. Economic decisions are going to be made collectively. A capitalist system is a capitalist to the extent that you have private property in the means of production, and individuals are allowed to make economic decisions on their own without having to consult everybody else. So that's an institutional definition of it. It's not, by definition, socialism is kindness and love and puppies, and by definition, capitalism is greed and meanness. It's an open empirical question to what degree various virtues and attitudes attach to these systems. So Jerry Cohen, in his book, Why Not Socialism, wants to make two basic claims. One is that moral market societies and market transactions are inherently repugnant. The kind of relationship you have with somebody when you buy something from them is in itself kind of foul and disgusting. In contrast, socialism is an intrinsically desirable way for human beings to live together. And then his empirical claim he wants to make is that some form of socialism might be possible, we're not really sure. But he really wants to push for these moral claims. Socialism is intrinsically good, capitalism is intrinsically bad. The only reason we put up with capitalism is because we are not good enough to make socialism work. So what's his argument? It involves, as many books do, a thought experiment an imaginary thought experiment, and a camping trip in particular. He says, I want you to imagine that you go on a camping trip with your friends, not just strangers, but people you truly and deeply care about and deeply love, right? People whose welfare matters to you as much as your own welfare. Like, as much as you might love your children, you love your friends, like, that much. When you go on this camping trip, maybe people show up with different stuff. Like, you bring a guitar, and you bring, like, a fishing pole, and you bring, like, a boom box with some batteries, and, you know, you bring, like... I don't know, Frisbee, and I bring a tent, and some other people bring some stuff. We, we show up with different items, but because we really love each other and really care about each other, we're going to share all, sorry, share all this stuff freely 
among ourselves. And also, because we really care about each other, you're not going to take advantage of any of our generosity. So in real life, if I like just let you use my stuff, well, maybe you'd you know, overuse it and kind of abuse it. But because you really care about me in this thought experiment, you're not going to do that. In this thought experiment, in this camping trip, I want to imagine that we work hard to make sure everyone has an equally good time. You know, no one's sort of like the Eric Cartman of the group. We're going to push you to the side and kind of mistreat you. Everyone's going to be treated equally. We're going to make sure that everyone's equally happy. We're also going to distribute the burdens of working together in a fair way. We're not going to say, you know, you're not as popular of a friend of ours, so when it comes to, like, cleaning up the latrine area, we're going to make you do the dirty work. We're going to share that. Everyone's going to be equal, and it's lovely. Sounds pretty good. Then he asks you, what if you went on a different camping trip? What if the camping trip changed and people started acting on this camping trip the way that people act in capitalist societies? So imagine, for example, that there's a person named Morgan, and he's really good at cracking nuts, and he's willing to teach other people how to crack nuts so that we can all have more nuts to eat, but only if you pay him first. Otherwise, he won't share his knowledge. I guess in this thought experiment, Morgan's kind of like a college professor. You'd kind of be like, well, Morgan's a jerk. Imagine that another guy, I don't know, Peter, is really good at fishing, and so if he goes and catches extra fish, we can all eat better at dinner that night. But he basically says, I'm only willing to use my talents to catch extra fish if you kind of relieve me of some of the crummier chores and I get to have more food than everybody else. So he's basically holding his talents hostage. He won't just share them freely. He's kind of acting like a jerk. Imagine there's another person. It's called her, I don't know, Claire. Um, she knows where there's a really good fishing spot, and she's willing to tell us about it. But again, only if she gets out doing the dirty jobs. And finally, there's another guy, let's call him Michael. His dad went to this camping spot 30 years prior, and he found a pond. He stocked it full of fish. So Michael, at, you know, at dinner time, he has all these extra fish. And while we're sitting there eating our dinner, he's got this plate just overflowing with extra food. And he's kind of gloating at us like, ha ha, I have better food than the rest of you. Like, I'm higher status, which is kind of like the equivalent of, I don't know, wearing a Swiss watch or driving a German luxury car. Right? So... Cohen says these kinds of behaviors are pretty repulsive, and they are exactly the sorts of behaviors you see in real-life capitalism. And then he just asks you, which would you prefer to go on? Which camping trip? Would you prefer to go on this one or this one? How many people liked the camping trip more when it was like this? Almost everybody, right? So I don't have to take the poll because there's so few hands left. So good, we now know it. Like, like just to be clear, audiences at the Heritage Foundation prefer the socialist camping trip. Right, so Nancy McLean, if you're watching, they're a bunch of lefties just like you. It's all cool. No worries. Like they're just a bunch of bleeding heart Marxists. No one likes this camping trip. So Cohen says, wouldn't it be nice if I had a magic wand that could convert the entire world to that? I don't. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't. But wouldn't it be cool? Like if I had this magic wand, and I could press it, and it would make everyone behave the way they did in the socialist camping trip. You wouldn't be like, no, no, don't press the wand. You'd love it. It'd be great if people were this kind and generous to one another and shared so freely and didn't take advantage of one another's generosity. Isn't it too bad that people are like this? So therefore, really deep down, you're all committed to the idea that socialism is better than capitalism because you prefer this to that. Now, some people, when they hear this argument, they're going to go, no, no, you don't understand. It's not feasible that we could make the world like that. And he says, even if you're right that it's not feasible, it doesn't really matter, because I'm asking about whether it's desirable. And whether something is desirable or not has nothing to do with its feasibility. Like, how many of you have seen, everyone's seen Star Wars, right? Wouldn't it be cool to have the Force? Like, who wants the Force? I'd love to have the Force, especially the dark side, because they get the lightning, right? <laughs> now, it's incompatible with the physics of our universe to have the Force. I had a professor in college who wrote a book about this, and he says, 
Given what we know about physics and what we know about how the force would work, it just would violate all these energy rules. So it's not like we're going to discover that some people have the force. It's incompatible with the physics of this universe. But it'd still be desirable to do it. If I could cure AIDS by snapping my fingers, that would be desirable. It's just not feasible. There's a story um, uh, from Russia about a fox that sees some grapes. And he can smell the grapes and realizes these are the tastiest grapes in the world. But he keeps jumping up and trying to get them, and he can't reach them. And then after jumping about 20 times, he gives up and goes, ah, they're probably sour grapes anyways. The fox is making a mistake. The fact that he can't access the grapes doesn't make them any less tasty. I'll give you maybe a more convoluted version of the same kind of thought. This is sort of a uh, modification of my former colleague David Eslin's stuff in one of his books. Um, imagine that we're out together looking for the best picnic spot. And we see up on the top of the hill the best picnic spot. It has just the right amount of sunlight and shade, just the right temperature, just enough bees to feel kind of like homey, but not so much they invade your food. It's clear that that's a better picnic spot than where we currently stand. But between us and that picnic spot are a few obstacles. One is there's a band of marauding ogres carrying battle axes, so we have to get past them. And if we can get past them, then there's some like alligators that might try to eat us. And then if we can get past them, we have to go down a deep ravine filled with spikes. And then we have to climb a really steep hill. And you can't see it, but around that hill is this kind of gaseous miasma. And if you breathe it in and you're perfectly virtuous, it has no effect on you whatsoever. But if you're a normal, flawed human being, it corrupts you the way that power tends to corrupt absolutely. And it will turn you into a murderous dictator like Stalin or Pol Pot or Mao. So, and finally, if you get past that, you're at the top of the hill. So here's what Eslin says. Look. Because it's so hard to get to the top of the hill, because there's so many dangerous obstacles, it's not even worth trying to get to the top of that hill. Nevertheless, that picnic spot is still better than where we currently stand. Makes sense. If you could teleport there, you would. This is what they're saying about socialism. Even if there are all these barriers to getting to socialism, it's still better than where we are. If we could make it work, we'd want to. It's still desirable as an end in itself, even if it's not accessible. Is socialism feasible? You know, there's two basic arguments that people make against it. One's a motivational problem, and one's an information problem. So I'm not going to review the information problem at length, but you might know that economists think that socialist planning isn't going to work because people are too stupid to engage in central planning. Cohen, to his credit, accepts that. He says, bourgeois economics, by which he just means economics, like non-Marxist economics, is essentially right. And it turns out that you can't have mass um, working together, mass cooperation, without some sort of price system in a real market. So he says, at best, we're going to have some form of market socialism. As far as the incentive problem goes, he says, yeah, real life people are jerks, but that's a problem with them, not a problem with the system. Right? People shouldn't behave that way. They should behave nicely. Don't you agree? It seems like you do. All right, fair enough. So most people find this argument persuasive. But what I want to do is show you what's wrong with it. And to do so, I'm going to parody it. My parody of the argument is going to be an argument for why capitalism is ideal. And at first, if you were a socialist, you're going to think what I'm saying is completely unfair. And you're right. It will be. But the problem with my argument for capitalism will be exactly the same as the problem with Cohen's argument for socialism. However, once we diagnose where my argument goes wrong and see how his argument goes wrong, a funny thing will happen. We'll realize that actually, if I could wave a magic wand and convert everyone in the world to an omnibenevolent angel, we would still actually be capitalists. We would not dispense with private property or with markets. So let me describe for you, instead of a camping trip, an ideal capitalist society. It turns out you can watch this capitalist society on TV. It's on Disney XD. It's called the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. So this is not the Mickey Mouse Club from the 1950s with like Annette Funicello. This is a um, computer animated cartoon. 
In this cartoon, Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, Minnie Mouse, Daisy Duck, uh, Clarabelle Cow, Professor Von Drake, and a number of other people live together in a village. This village, in a sense, morally flawless. Nothing really bad ever happens. I guess there's a character named Pete who sometimes acts badly, but you could write him out of the story. He's not essential to it. Um, they live together in this village, and they're com- they have some communal spaces. They have some private spaces, but they're robustly capitalist. Clarabel Cow, picture there on the on the right, left, I guess your left, uh, owns a sundry store called a Moo Mart and also a factory called the Moo Muffin Factory. Minnie Mouse has a bow making factory and a bow store called the Boutique. Get it? Right, clever. Uh, pro- Willie the Giant is a massive landowner. Like he owns a lot of land and he's massive. He has a giant amount of land. He's a bourgeois landowner, bourgeois farmer. Uh, Donald Duck is also a farmer, though he seems to own a little bit less land. Professor Drake has advanced nanotech machinery that can manufacture various items on demand. Now, they often give stuff to one another, but they also engage in lots of market transactions. They buy and sell things for profit. They don't just give everything away. They're capitalists and robustly capitalists. Nevertheless, nothing really bad ever happens on the show. They're committed to all sorts of interesting moral principles. They're committed to a principle of social justice by which they ensure that the background economic conditions make it so everyone leads a good life. And if anyone starts to slip through the cracks through no fault of their own, they all voluntarily come together to help that person, and no one would ever free ride on their generosity. So they do this without any kind of state enforcement and any kind of state redistribution because they're such good people, they don't need that. So like the evil people who live in Denmark won't just help each other nicely. They they have to have the state force them to do it. But in the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse world, they don't need it. They respect one another's rights, but they don't have to use any kinds of threats of violence to enforce those rights. So they're anarchists and they have no police force and no government. They live under principles of benevolence where if I see you're in need, I make sure that I help you, and you respect that. They live under principles of tolerance. They don't just accept differences among one another and have robust free speech and so on, but they accept um, even differences that like the United States had problems with. So Clarabelle Cow and Goofy Dog are a thing, you know, but no one has any kind of like racial animosity towards that. They just accept that behavior, unlike the U.S., which had long history of racial problems. They seem to be a utopian society, and there's nothing here that a socialist could complain about. So it looks really great. But what if, for the sake of argument, they became socialist? What if the Mickey Mouse Club started behaving the way real-life socialist societies behave? So Mickey Mouse decides we need to have an economic plan, and he installs himself as a kind of dictator or leader of the Communist Party, and he creates five-year economic plans. And when the farmers and others refuse to go along with it, he just starves all of them and kills them and takes their stuff. Suppose that they end up having, because so many people resist their plans, they take all the intellectuals and all the educated people in that society, they line them up and shoot them, and they try to go back to world zero. Suppose because these plans don't work that there's massive economic stagnation, and the standard of living of the average person does not rise for a good 90 years. Suppose what they do is they take everyone who disagrees with, and even a lot of people who agree with the the kind of economic organization and the party, and they throw them into gulags. And the conditions in the gulags are so horrible that people will voluntarily choose chop off their own arms so they can rot and die in the hospital rather than die in the mines. Well, we probably wouldn't let people watch that kind of show. We wouldn't have our kids watch it. So then I can just ask, okay, how many, you know, how many of you would prefer to live in the capitalist version of the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse Village? Everybody. How many of you would like to live in the socialist version of the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse Village? Nobody. Granted, you're not, you know, you're here in this place, so you're not you might have a certain political leaning. But I've asked this question to a few thousand left-wing philosophers over the last few years. 
No one ever picks this over the other thing. So I could be like, aha, you're all capitalists deep down, which is the same exact move that Jerry Cohen made when he had his thought experiment. But really what socialists say is, no, no, no. When, when I advocate socialism, I'm, not, I'm talking about people being nice to each other. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you know, the, the other thought experiment. So what's going on here? What was unfair about my thought experiment? What's unfair about Jerry Cohen's? Here's really what he did. And this isn't just him that does this. Lots of people make the same argument. What he does is he says, I want you to imagine socialist institutions plus morally perfect people. Compare that to capitalist institutions plus realistic flawed people. Which do you prefer? If you prefer socialism with angels to capitalism with normal people, that doesn't tell us whether it's the angels that's doing the work or the socialism. So it wouldn't, like, basically he's arguing this. Socialism with morally perfect people is better than capitalism with real flawed people. Therefore, socialism is intrinsically more desirable than capitalism. That doesn't follow. At best, all he's shown us is that an ideal utopian socialism where you get to stipulate that people behave exactly the right way might be better than realistic capitalism. But it leaves open the question, capitalism plus angels versus socialism plus angels, which is better? And then capitalism with real people versus socialism with real people, which is better? Cohen, despite being a Marxist philosopher, actually admits, no, with real people, uh, capitalism performs better than socialism. But nevertheless, it's still ideal. So if a socialist heard me make this argument, they'd go, oh, you know, the reason I like capitalism here isn't because it's capitalist. It's because you've stipulated that the people are perfectly virtuous, and you're comparing that to the bad behavior we saw in Cambodia and the USSR and China. But for me, the, the problem is the level of virtue. It's not the institutions themselves. So Cohen's argument does not work. It's a trick. He tricked himself. He didn't even realize it. Cohen's not the only person who makes this mistake. The great philosopher John Rawls makes this exact mistake, and he's so bad at this mistake that he makes it a page next to the place where he warns against doing it. So in the book, Justice's Fairness, a Restatement, he has a thing where he says, on one paragraph, we have to be really careful not to compare the ideal of one system to a realistic depiction of another, but rather compare ideal to ideal and realistic depiction to another. It's like, you're absolutely right, Rawls. That's the right thing to do. And then the next page, he doesn't do that. He messes it up. And he, does, he makes an argument where he's like, well, you know, what's the best kind of economic system? Would it be property-owning democracy or welfare state capitalism? And then he just describes what he thinks are the realistic flaws of the welfare state capitalism. And then when people bring up complaints about his perfect system, like Jim Buchanan and other public choice theorists say, hey, Rawls, we're worried that the system you envision in real life would be full of rent-seeking and moral hazard and all these other problems. He's like, oh, no, no, don't worry, because I'm just imagining an ideal. It's like, you literally just told us not to do that a page before, and somehow a page later you're just making the exact mistake you warned against. So this kind of thing is endemic to philosophy, but it's not just philosophers. Average people make this mistake all the time. When you ask them about their politics, what they do is they say, here's what's happening in the real world that I don't like, and I want to compare that to these institutions functioning exactly the way I imagine them to function. Sort of an ideal of one set of institutions compared to a realistic description of the other. It's not that interesting. What you want to do is ask, institutions in the real world, warts and all, with realistic people, how will they function compared to other institutions with realistic people? And if you want to do idealistic, utopian, moral philosophy, then you just have to imagine everyone's an angel and ask what would follow from there. But people don't. Cohen's other mistake, and this happens a lot uh, with others, is to say they sometimes equivocate between an institutional definition of socialism and defining socialism in terms of kindness. 
So I remember giving a talk about this at the American Philosophical Association, and I was describing the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. And I had about 100 people in the room, mostly like left-wing philosophers. And they said, oh, no. one person raised his hand and said, no, 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 that's not capitalism. And I went, well, why not? They said, well, because they're nice. What do you mean? Well, I mean, by definition, they can't be capitalists if they're nice to one another. Okay. I mean, that would be like me saying, oh, no, Jerry Cohen's camping trip, that's not socialism because they're nice. By definition, socialism involves, like, dictators murdering the peasants. Right? It doesn't make sense. It's not a good argument. All right. So, interestingly, you know, Cohen, like, has this argument that he thinks that markets are going to corrupt us and make us worse people. But despite being a person who's very concerned about community and very concerned about making sure that we create institutions that make us care about one another more, he never really left his armchair to look at the empirical evidence. In fact, there's a massive amount of empirical work studying how markets affect our character. So one of the things that economists will do is they play these games with one another. Like you've heard of the prisoner's dilemma, I assume. Everyone knows that. But there are all these games where it's something called the trust game. Like we give you $10. You're allowed to send as much of it as you want to me. However much money you send to me, they'll multiply it by three. I know how much you've sent, and I can send some back. If you're perfectly trusting and I'm perfectly trustworthy, what you'll do is give me all $10. I get 30. I give you 15 back, and then we both get 15. Right? There are games called dictator games. I get $10. I can just share it with you if I want to. Will I just share and be unconditionally generous and so on? So these games that trust things like generosity the tendency to be trustworthy, the tendency to trust others, the tendency to punish free riding, and so on. And it turns out, empirically, that the more market-oriented your society is that you come from, the more likely you are to be generous, kind, trustworthy, and play fair in these games. If you come from a socialist society or a traditional society, you're less likely. So Cohen, over and over, is saying, well, capitalism isn't just relying upon greed and selfishness, but it exacerbates it. But the empirical data shows that he's wrong. So at this point, all I've done is really debunked a kind of argument that most people make, where they're comparing an ideal description of socialism to what they take as a realistic depiction of capitalism. And they say, because the ideal of socialism is better than the realistic depiction, it must mean socialism is better. And I've said, nope, we have to compare an ideal to an ideal and real to real. Now I'm going to end, though, by arguing that even if we were angels, we would still be capitalists. In fact, at an ideal level, a society of angels would prefer to be capitalist to socialist. So to make that argument, I have to have you imagine certain things. A world like ours, where people have the kinds of abilities that we have, no superpowers, no special knowledge, the same kinds of abilities we have. But I take everybody's morality meter, and I ramp it up to 11. I make them all maybe like Christ-like in character, if not in power. They're all perfectly virtuous. Then I have to ask, in that world, would that society be capitalist, socialist, or something else? I mean, certainly be anarchist. You wouldn't have any need to enforce rules using violence. But what kind of anarchy would it be? Socialist anarchy? Capitalist anarchy? Some other kind of anarchy? So to prove that this utopia is capitalist, I have to give you a couple arguments. One is I need to explain why they might want private property and the means of production rather than socialist property. And also I need to explain why they'd want to have markets. So why would they? Well, what do we mean by property rights? When you think about what a property right is, like I have a car in a parking garage over by Union Station. That was the nearest parking I could find. Um, what I say is like there's this piece of the universe that you're not allowed to interact with, that I'm allowed to exclude you from. And I have the right to modify it and change it and sell it, and you can't really touch it without my permission. It's weird that that kind of right would exist. What purpose would it serve? Now, some of the arguments that economists make is that in the real world, we, can't, we have to privatize things because if everything is collectively held, people will overuse it and destroy it. And that's a good argument, but it doesn't apply to utopia. In utopia, you don't have to worry about perfectly virtuous people exploiting tragic, like creating tragic commons by over-exploiting common property. So some of these economic arguments get thrown out. So we're going to have to move to more kind of highfalutin moral arguments. 
here's some. I think even in utopia, people are going to want access, sustained access to private goods because human beings tend to be project pursuers. They tend to get meaning from their life from having things that they're working on over a long period of time. Right? So I have a bunch of guitars and a few guitar amps, and I want to know that when I leave that stuff and I come back, it's going to be ready for me to use at any given time the way that I left it. Um, I need to have a space that's my own. I wouldn't really feel at home in the world if every single thing that I interacted with had to be decided by committee. We all have a need to have some spaces where we get to unilaterally shape them to our own desires. Right? We like to work on things. Imagine like you're a painter, and you go to paint, and every painting is done by committee. So we're like, we sit down together, and we're like, we're socialist painters. We have to decide what it is we're going to paint. Um, let's take a vote. I really would like to paint a sunset. All right, cacti one. All right, I guess we're painting another cactus. All right, what color should the cactus be? Lime green. Okay, what, what stroke should I take? Uh, okay, we're going to start over here. We're going to use a number seven paintbrush. That would stink. It would be horrible to write, to be a painter like that. It would be horrible if, to write papers where, you know, every time you sit down to write an academic paper, you have to do it all by committee, and everything is collectively decided. Now, Cohen agrees with everything I just said. I'm taking arguments from him. He says, for this reason, you should be allowed to have private property and things like painting and be allowed to have your own guitar amp and stuff, as long as you just don't make any money off of it. You, so even like hardcore socialists like Cohen say there should be some private property for the reasons I've listed on the board here. But he says, why would you need private property in the means of production? What's so special about that? And I go, well, Cohen... You understand as a socialist philosopher why you don't, when you sit down to do your work, you don't write every paper collectively, but you want to do your papers individually. That applies to entrepreneurs who want to, like Minnie Mouse has an idea of how she'd like to make bows, and she wants to try her idea out on the market. She doesn't want to make it all done collectively. It's not enough for Willie the Giant to work on a farm as one of many workers collectively deciding, but he wants to have his own farm where he can try out his own vision of farming. So if you can empathize with a painter and an artist, you can empathize with other people who might engage in productive activities. So it seems like the arguments that the socialists are giving for private property in personal items also apply to private property in productive things. Now they say, I'm worried that in you know, the real world, if we allow people to have capitalist property, they're going to exploit one another and take advantage of one another and so on. Right? Maybe they will. In fact, they do. But in utopia, that doesn't happen because we're by definition stipulating that Minnie Mouse and so on are angels. They won't engage in that behavior. So the complaints that they have about capitalism disappear. What about reasons for having economic liberty? There's a couple. One is that people want to be authors of their own lives. So in the same way that it's important to you to be able to choose your own religion, choose your own with whom you associate with, whom you befriend, whom you marry what you hang out with, what clubs you belong to, where you work, and so on, because that's what it takes for you to be an author of your own life. It's also important to you, I think, to make economic decisions. What you buy, what you invest in, what you purchase, whether you save, the trade-offs that you make, these are things that affect your life greatly. And as much as possible, we'd like people to be authors of their own destiny rather than having that being decided for them by others. Seems reasonable. And again, Socialists make the same argument about almost everything else. They don't have any special reason to cordon off economic activity. So one final reason is that markets serve the common good. And so if are, by definition, the people in utopia are benevolent. They're going to want to serve other people. They're going to be glad to have, be, work in an economic system that makes it so that strangers they never meet are better off. So imagine, just to illustrate this, I imagine I have a different magic wand. When I wave this magic wand, it makes everyone in the world 30 times richer. I'm picking that because we're about 30 times richer overall per person than we are 1,000 years ago. If I wave this magic wand, we're all 30 times richer. Should I wave the wand? 
Jerry Cohen would say, yes, he is a materialist. The point of Marxism was to make people rich, not just equal, but equally rich. So he'd be like, yes, waving the magic wand is a great thing to do. According to Jerry Cohen, this socialist philosopher, this stuff here, I don't actually have very much cash in here right now. This isn't, uh, this isn't just money. This is a ticket. This is freedom, according to Cohen. The more of this you have and the real wealth that it represents, the more freedom you have to live a life that's authentically yours, to explore the world, to see things, to do things. So I, Jerry Cohen, want all the people to have more stuff because that creates freedom for them. So then he would say to Cohen, well, imagine we had an omnibenevolent philosopher queen, an omniscient philosopher queen. What she can do is come up with an economic plan. She can give everybody options. She doesn't have to push the one around. She can say, you can either be a medical doctor or a farmer, and you can either be an auto mechanic or a nurse, and you can either be, um, I don't know, a medical doctor or a uh, mechanical engineer. And if you work here, here, and here, if we all go along with my plan, we'll make everyone 30 times richer. Cohen would say a socialist society would voluntarily choose to go along with her plan because they know that's a way of enhancing everyone's freedom and enhancing everyone's riches. But unfortunately, economics tells us there will never be any such philosopher queen. Human beings are too dumb to come up with these decisions to figure out an economic plan like this. However, economics also tells us we have a really good substitute for the philosopher queen. It's called the market. The forces of supply and demand and the information that's communicated through prices serve the function of this philosopher queen. That's true in the real world where people are flawed and imperfect in processing information. It's even more true in utopia. So for that reason, Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse and so on would want to live in a capitalist society as a way of ensuring that distant strangers on the other side of the globe have their lives enhanced and get to have greater wealth and greater freedom that comes with that wealth. There's one final argument, which is, which would you choose? So if I ask you to pick a utopia, utopia one is Jerry Cohen's camping trip. Imagine a socialist society full of angels. And compare that to the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. Imagine a capitalist society full of angels. If you want, imagine there are people rather than anthropomorphic animals. How many of you would prefer the socialist camping trip? How many of you would prefer the capitalist camping trip? Almost everybody, right? Now, granted, you're not, you're not maybe not a super ideologically diverse crowd because you're hanging out here, like you're the kind of people that come here. But I've asked this question to maybe about 6,000 people so far. Usually I'm addressing like left-wing people at universities. Almost everyone picks the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse over the camping trip. So when I have socialists in the audience, they're like, yeah, I'd pick the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse over the socialist camping trip. That sounds better to me. They're like, I'm still socialist in the real world, but I agree that, like, yeah, I guess utopia would be capitalist. So that tells you something. Very few people would actually pick the socialist trip over the capitalist thing. But it's actually a trick question because capitalism doesn't make you choose, and that's why it's better. The Mickey Mouse Clubhouse village has a capitalist superstructure where the fundamental relationships that strangers have are market-oriented and they deal with each other through money and so on. But it's also perfectly permissible in the society to have non-market relationships. If the Smurfs want to move in and start a little commune in the middle of the village, the, the Smurfs are communists, you know? Like, Papa Smurf purposely looks like Karl Marx, that's on purpose, you know, that's why he wears red. Like, um, if the Smurfs want to start a commune in the middle of that, they're like, that's cool. You can have a commune as long as you respect that some people aren't going to be working on communes. So you can have a kibbutzim over here and a kibbutzim over here and a commune over here as long as you allow overall for there to be a kind of libertarian, market-oriented superstructure. And in fact, when you think about it, even in a capitalist society, many of us live in communes. right? Like I live in a small commune with four people and a puppy. Right? Live in a commune. 
So the nice thing about capitalism is it doesn't make you choose. It actually allows for people to have lots of different styles of utopia in a sense. You can have maybe your idea of utopia is like a Christian fishing village living a kind of in, like traditional lifestyle. My idea of utopia might be like a less muggy version of, of northern Virginia with a little bit less traffic where we all get together and play like heavy metal at night. Your idea of utopia might be like a Smurf commune. And this kind of utopia would be allowed under the capitalist system, whereas Cohen would be like, no, there's only one way utopia can go. So what's funny about this, if you know your philosophy, is that Jerry Cohen got his start by writing a critique of Robert Nozick's Anarchy, State, and Utopia. But if you really take Cohen's argument seriously, what he's really doing, what it implies is that Nozick was right about what utopia is like. Utopia is a capitalist superstructure that allows for non-capitalist interactions within it, which means it's better. So what does this all wrap up to? Well, Cohen and other socialists are trying to seize the moral high ground. Many of them admit that in the real world, capitalism outperforms socialism. They say that's because people are flawed. If we were good, socialism would work, and ideal socialism is better than realistic capitalism. Maybe they're right, but when you do further analysis, you get that ideal capitalism beats ideal socialism, realistic capitalism beats realistic socialism, which means that capitalism beats socialism at every level. Right? In the real world, capitalism encourages entrepreneurs who don't know you to create products that you want and services you want at prices you can afford to pay. In an ideal situation, capitalism does even better, where it gives you the possibility of your own personal utopia. So capitalism beats socialism at every level. Thanks. Now your Q&A. Just stand or sit. Did state your name and any institutional affiliation. Question. David. David Ditch, uh, Heritage Foundation. Uh, typically in the American or uh, Western context, when the word socialism comes up, um, the promoters like Bernie Sanders are not talking about USSR and communism. They're talking about, quote, unquote, democratic socialism as you know, the ideal of the 1960s you know, Sweden or modern France, um, how do you respond to the cr criticism that it isn't a proper comparison to you know, compare democratic socialism to communism? Yeah, good. Yeah, so there are some people who want to argue that realistic cap socialism of a certain sort will work better. And you know, I'm sure you know the, the numbers on this too. If you ask people in the U.S., you know, do you prefer socialism or capitalism? Depending on how you phrase the question, you might get a slight majority of young people saying socialism over capitalism. If you ask them more specific questions, like do you want economic control of the means of production or do you want it market-oriented, they'll say markets, not economic, like not that. So it's not even really clear whether most people who call themselves socialists are socialists. And the funny thing about people like Sanders and the other kind of so-called democratic socialists is that they're pointing to these countries in bright blue over here these Nordic countries in Finland, and saying, I want to be socialist like them. And it's an odd thing. I know you know this, but it's like an odd thing for them to say because they're not actually referring to what they were like in the like, you know, 1960s when there's a lot of economic stagnation. They're talking about what they're like now. And the better way to describe them now is that they're free market welfare states. So both according to the uh, Heritage Foundation's index and the Fraser Institute's index, on many levels, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Finland, 
the Netherlands uh, and Switzerland and other countries that Americans are sometimes point to and call socialist are much more free market oriented than the U.S. It's easier to start businesses. We have, it's easier to fire people. There are weaker minimum wage laws. There's less government regulation overall of business. They get dinged because they have a very expansive welfare state and high taxes. Right? But on most levels, most measures, they're higher up. So in the Fraser Institute's rankings, the U.S. moved up this past year. But like when I wrote this book, it was like number 18, and Denmark was higher, and Norway was higher. So I tend to think what you're actually pointing to when you look at these countries, if you admire them, is free market welfare states. It's a good question about whether that's the best system, but that's what they are. They're not socialist. And in fact, you know, when Bernie Sanders was pointing to Denmark and calling it, we should be socialists like Denmark, you might remember that the prime minister of Denmark got on the news and said, dude, we're not socialists. Stop calling us that. We are a free market country. We are a free market capitalist country. We just have a lot of welfare programs. For what it's worth, you know, um, the U.S. spends a lot of money on person-to-person welfare transfers. We only spend about $1,000 less per capita on person-to-person transfers than Sweden does. We just don't do our welfare state very well. So we don't really need really more money. If you want to copy Sweden, we don't really need higher taxes and more money. You just have to actually copy Sweden. So when someone like Sanders says that, I'm like, all right, so you want to be more like Sweden? You want to like have school choice and universal vouchers for school choice and significantly deregulate the economy and et cetera, et cetera. And they're just like, no, I want you to be like Sweden as I'm imagining it, not Sweden as it is. So, yeah, well, he's a politician. They're intellectually dishonest. What can you do? I, I have one question of you. You obviously work with a lot of young people, and I was interested in your thoughts about what is most likely to persuade young people that free enterprise is superior to socialism in your experience. I think, uh, I mean, granted, I work at a McDonough School of Business at Georgetown, so the people I primarily have in classes are people that want to work in business. They tend to be pretty, they're pro-market and pro-capitalism to begin with. Uh, when they read Cohen, they're like, is there, I'm not sure what it is, there's something wrong with this, this can't be right. I'm sure if I were working like in, you know, the uh, like peace and justice studies department, I'd get a different kind of reaction from people. I think, uh, that said, I think there are things that they're concerned about, but their concerns are kind of traditional left liberal concerns about whether government should intervene because without intervention, maybe certain um, industries or certain companies would get to have too much monopolistic power, and that would be really problematic. Or maybe we need some government regulation to prevent certain kinds of um, malfeasance from, from country, like from certain companies. They don't think like a tort system will be enough to regulate that. Or they worry about the effects on the global poor. Uh, and whether capitalism is serving them, which is one reason why I talk at great length about immigration, and I have a book on immigration and so on, because I often try to tell them, capitalism wants the world to be richer and more equal than you're letting it, but the kinds of immigration restrictions that people like Bernie Sanders promote, I mean, Bernie Sanders' campaign attacked me personally in the, during the last presidential election, an op-ed critiquing me. So the kinds of restrictions on immigration they promote, which I, that they promote, which I reject, hurt the poor tremendously. I don't know if you know the data on this, but economists try to estimate like what would happen in a world where people could freely move between countries at will. And the median estimate in the economic literature is that it would double world products. Right now, we're at $110 trillion in PPP-adjusted world production. It would be 220 in a world of open borders. Someone like Bernie Sanders comes along and says, basically, I mean, this is, this is basically what he's saying. He doesn't put it this way. I, Bernie Sanders in order to promote the welfare of Americans at the first percentile of income in the world, um, I'm willing to throw genuinely poor people under the bus. 
And that's because he assumes that immigration would hurt those workers, even though that's not what this, the data says. It's not what the evidence says. So I think that's what they're concerned about. Like not, they don't think the market is evil. They think it has certain flaws and government can intervene to fix them. They're kind of like more traditional 1960s liberals than, than real socialists, as far as I can see. I don't really know how to ask this question, but I was wondering, I live in the Northern Virginia area, and our General Assembly is almost 50-50. We have maybe one Republican, um, I think, in the, sound, the Senate. And I was wondering, do you think or that the Northern Virginia, Virginia is turning more of a socialist or a libertarian or liberal bent because of this, and how do you try to figure that out. Yeah. In a sense, I've, I've written a lot of stuff on democracy and how people think. I've written actually three books on voter behavior um, and how th people think. So my view is that most people are not actually ideological at all, uh, that it's all expressive. So I'm from the Boston area. That's where I grew up. As a result, you know which team I root for when it comes to football, right? The Patriots, the good team. And I root for the Red Sox when it comes to baseball and so on. Nobody's perfect. Yeah. Now, it turns out for me this year, those are the best teams. They won the championships. But I rooted for them even when they were terrible. I rooted for them even in off years. Why did I root for them? It's not because when I was 12, I sat down and I studied the history of baseball and the history of football, and I determined the Patriots are the most virtuous team and I should root for them. I root for them because I grew up in that area. And to sort of signal my fidelity, and I'm a member of that group, it's important that I kind of take this on as a team membership. And I have this sort of non-rational commitment to those teams, which you know, it sustains itself even though I'm able to talk about it like this. I still root for the Cats. Um, I think there's really good evidence that for the overwhelming majority of, of citizens, I mean like 90% of them, their attachment to a political party is exactly the same psychologically as their attachment to a sports team. If you want to read a good book on this other than one of mine, like the book Against Democracy, read a book called Democracy for Realists by Christopher Aiken and Larry Bartels. It's all about testing the thesis about what creates fidelity to a particular party. They say it's something like this. Um, people have a sense of their own identity. Like, I'm a Boston Irish person. And through historical accident, certain identities get attached to certain political parties, not because they endorse the politics of that party, not because they know what the politics of that party is, not because they share ideals or principles with that party, and not even because that party is very good for them and tends to promote their interests. It's rather pure historical accident, an arbitrary attachment. And they have tests of this to show, oh, this is why Jews switched from Republican to Democrat in this period. And this is why Southern evangelicals switched from um, Democrat to Republican in this period. It's nothing to do with ideology. And then for most people, that's all it is. It's just sports team affiliation. So I think the typical person in Northern Virginia, like my neighbors, my, if you look at the politically incorrect map of Northern Virginia online and you look at my neighborhood, it says rich Democrats, rich white Democrats. Um, so why are they important attached to the Democratic Party? It's like a... It's like an, an identity thing. I'm the kind of person who lives here. To show that I'm the kind of person who lives here, I have to vote for a particular party. I have to hate Trump. I have to put up, like, no hate doesn't live here posters on my, on my like, uh, lawn, which ironically is meant to just make Trump supporters feel bad. Like, that's the goal, is actually to hate on them, not to actually be supportive of immigrants, because um, they're not, like, pro-immigration people, right? Uh, I think that's all that's going on. I think only maybe one out of 10 people in the U.S. has a genuine ideological attachment to either party or to any kind of politics at all. Other questions? This gentleman here. 
what's your definition of capitalism? It seems to be just market economy. Um, but haven't markets been around for thousands of years? Yeah, I think of it as like a, I want to sort of operationalize it in a sense. I don't think you can come up with a real nice one sentence definition. Okay. Maybe you can't, good. Uh, I'll ask you then what you think it is. Because I think if you say like it's private production, private ownership of the means of production, which is how like say a lot of socialists would define it, that's still puzzling because I get this you know, 401k where I own all these stocks collectively with other people, just not literally everybody. And then is it really, is, are the socialist countries really socialist when it's really like the government owns the stuff, not people, not really collectively? So I tend to think that the way that uh, the Fraser Institute or the Heritage Institute do it where you take a bunch of different measures, like the degree of economic regulation of this activity, the way that government responds to money, um, how strong the protection is of private property and how easy it is to expropriate it, et cetera, and you kind of look at those with independent axes, then I think you get sort of a functional definition that's more useful than any sort of one-sentence philosophical definition. So I guess I would say something like a capitalist country is a country that gets a 10 on all of the Fraser Institute scores, and a non-capitalist country is one that gets a zero, and then there's everything in between. But what's your one-sentence definition? Uh, capitalism is an economic system based on the charging of interest for the use of capital. Throughout most of Christian, not, excuse me, uh, mosaic religions history, all three of them, uh, Christianity, Islam, and, and Judaism, uh, usurism was prohibited. And we tend to, when I was a boy, I was taught, oh, usury is excessive interest. No, that's not what usury is. <laughs> interest is a charge of interest for the use of capital. Uh, so the big change, and I would attribute it to the discovery of the new world, uh, that uh, all of a sudden uh, <laughs> it made everybody was willing to pay interest <laughs> <laughs> for the opportunities that were presented, uh, and the, this, we, we, you're all admitting you're admitting that the picture gets rather blurry when you look at the specifics of either a capitalist or a socialist economy. Uh, but that particular distinction is uh, rather clear, uh, uh, historically accurate, I think, um, and is uh, suggest that. If our economy stops growing due to resource limitations or whatever, capitalism won't work. Any other questions? Back in the back. Yeah, uh, Brian O'Quinn, Heritage. Uh, I, was, I was thinking about your uh, ideal socialism versus ideal capitalism, and I was uh, trying to reduce it down. I want to see if you agree with this assessment. It seems like that with ideal capitalism, we have just sort of a, a situation, an, op, an optimization problem with zero constraints. And for ideal socialism, we have an optimization problem, but with plus one constraint, that constraint is the means of production cannot be privately held. So do you agree with this sort of, uh, this formulation that, of uh, what you are uh, putting forward, I guess? When you mean by optimization problem, you're talking about like from the economic sense. What do you mean? So I'm trying to think of it, uh, I guess, sort of mathematically. And so you, ha if everyone, generally speaking, if you're trying to, you know, find an optimal solution, the more constraints you have, the worse the solution is going to be. So in the capitalist situation that you describe, there are zero constraints. In the socialist situation, ideal situation, there's one constraint that. Uh, 
private or the means of production cannot be privately held. Okay. This, this might not be directly a response because it depends on what you, who you have in mind. I think uh, for Cohen, Cohen wants to be a liberal socialist. So he's not the kind of person who says, you know, there's like a social choice function based upon everyone's preferences that society has to somehow resolve. He rather wants to say something like, um, people have diverse conceptions of the good life and different kinds of values, and I want an economic system where everyone's given an extensive sphere of freedom to, and, a, and a certain set of resources to realize their own good as they see fit. But I have a constraint, which is, you know, we can't allow any private property in the means of production. That's what he has in mind. And he thinks that would be best. And like in a world like that, if people were morally perfect, whatever that means, whatever you regard as perfect moral virtue, complete lack of moral flaws, that would be perfectly just society, which seems to make sense because you can say, if you have a society in which people voluntarily choose to do unjust things, for that reason, it's not perfectly just. Right? So I'm basically playing off of him and saying, I don't see why you have this constraint in the first place on private property. Um, under those conditions, private property would serve a lot of ends that you would regard as useful and valuable. And further, the things that you worry about in the real world about private property wouldn't happen. So as a Marxist, he's like, ah, there's going to be exploitation. Yeah, in real life capitalism, there's exploitation. In real life socialism, there's exploitation. In fact, more. But that wouldn't happen under ideal conditions. But um, I wouldn't want to say it's an optimization problem in kind of like an Arovian social choice sense. And I don't even want to say it's a social optimization problem in like a kind of Pareto, like Pareto equilibrium analysis sense, because it could very well be that the people in this utopia, many of them choose to forego economic gains in favor of something else, and some will choose like these kind of weird communities. So yeah, I'm not, I, I guess it just depends what you mean by optimization problem. But I hope that that helps to some degree. All right, uh, we have time for one more question, and. Is there anybody that hasn't answered the question yet? Okay. Ma'am, go ahead. I just wondered, um, like, we have elections now in the Northern Virginia area for, for um, running for the Senate and the House of, you know, State Senate and State Representatives. Let's say the Democrats take over, and they're now... I mean, the one person, I mean, they had to draw from a hat, you know, and it became a Republican um, because Virginia's mostly blue, especially up here. Will we start being like New York or California and embracing more of a, the socialist type of foundation? Or is it just because of the Democrats' philosophy? Or do the two meet in some way and they blur? Do we equate? the Democrats' philosophy with socialism. Does it make sense? Yeah, that's a good question. I think uh, you know, it'd be hard to predict what would happen if Democrats take over in Virginia. Um, you know, historically, Republicans, despite often using small government reg uh, rhetoric, don't actually shrink the size of government. Despite um, talking about reducing, like, not starving the beast, they usually just feed it a lot, but feed it through debts rather than taxation. So the I see the Democrats as tax and spend, and Republicans as spend but tax a little bit. Spend the same but tax less. Um, I don't really see most Republicans as massive deregulators. So I think on the margins, maybe a typical Democrat will move us to a little bit more government regulation of the economy, um, to certain kinds of interventions which are supposedly meant to serve the poor but actually are meant to serve special interest groups like teachers unions and so on, um, and, and constituents of that party. 
But I, I don't know. I think the, the difference between them is really minute. So the typical Democrat and Republican, they're like, we are, we are mortal enemies, and we can never show we meet. But for, as an outsider to the parties, it's, they're like the same kind of football team. Like the, the differences are relatively minor. Now, of course, if it turned out that we had like a really radical kind of left-wing movement on the Democrats and a kind of centrist movement on the Republicans, and the Democrats took over, that could lead to massive changes. But you know, I think the, the distribution of ideology is closer to being centrist than it is to being extreme. Um, so yeah, I guess it's possible Virginia could go the route of New York. That certainly could happen. It could go more towards Texas. I don't think I can make a prediction of what will happen. All right, well, thank you very much. This concludes our event.